like some coffee or anything? What? Yes. Yes? yes. Look, before you guys came, I drank two cups of coffee. Oh my God. I know, like in a matter of about 90 seconds. Does anybody here know what it is that I do? You're a pastor, so you preach what's in the Bible. You do most of the work in the story. That's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. No one else does any work. So do you remember anything I've said that you really, really liked? No. Do you remember anything I've said that you really, really didn't like? No. Do you remember anything at all that I've ever said ever? Do you make money off being a pastor? I do. Wow. Like, we, we don't go to church and like pay money. Uh, yeah, you do. We do? Yeah, I do the offering. I just put all that in my pocket after the service. <laughs> it's, <laughs> not sure it's, it's the tip job what was it's the donation. pretty much a holy tip job is what it is. So has there ever been a time where I said something about God or maybe your parents said something or, or you heard something about God in the Bible maybe? That just gave you like a lot of questions. You were like, I just, I'm not sure if I buy that. On the Adam and Eve story, how did God make so many people just from those two people? So you had Adam and Eve, and right? Guys. Like your mom and dad. And then they had some kids, sons and daughters. Can you guys imagine marrying your people. your brother or your sister? I thought it was like genetically impossible. It's illegal. No, it's not. Uh, you ever been to Arkansas? Was, I'm going tomorrow. Let's talk about Noah's Ark for a second. This Bible story, man, uh, it's on the cover of every children's Bible I've ever seen. It's pretty horrific. So all the animals die, and like, the unicorns didn't make it in time. Unicorns? Yeah, man, they didn't make it to the boat in time. The dinosaurs were all just waiting there on the shore, like, oh, dang it. A lot of people die. It just, it seems like a pretty horrific story to put on a children's Bible. Did Noah actually bring two of every single kind of animal in the world? Where do you think he found like polar bears? South. The South Pole. So if God walked into this room right now, what question would you want to ask him? What does God look like? What does God look like? So if he walked in and stood right in front of you, you would still ask him with your one question, what do you look like? Even though he's standing right in front of you. Yeah. Got it. Okay. In Genesis, when God rested on the seventh day, what did he do? Does God learn? Does he already know everything? He knows that Adam and Eve are going to get tricked by the serpent. So why not prevent that from happening? Does God follow me everywhere I go? Is he like a stalker or something? No, or like a creeper. Like a creeper. You think God's a creeper? No, like it just sounds like he's a creeper. You still love him? Yeah. I would ask him who made him. Who made God? Maybe himself? You think God made himself? So maybe I think the unicorn part of me would say, why didn't you make unicorns? Did you just say that you're part unicorn? <laughs> no. I meant like the part of me that like loves unicorns. The other part of me would ask, why did you make sicknesses or illnesses if you like, wanted love us and wanted people to be happy? Now that is a fantastic list of questions. You guys, thank you so much for being with me today, for sharing your questions, some of your answers with me today. And I want to encourage you to never, ever, 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 ever stop asking questions because it's when we ask our questions 
that those doubts that we have can start to fuel our faith so that we grow even more in love with God by asking the questions that are on our hearts. So I'm an old man, and I've been sitting in this tiny, tiny chair for two hours. You guys think you can help me out of this chair? Somebody take this. Somebody take this. One, two, three. Really? Really? Gosh, the way you treat your pastor. talking about these questions the kids are, are asking for the whole month, and, um, and the first question we're going we're gonna to talk about is the one that I actually heard the most. I heard this question the most often from the most kids. It's a very simple question. The most popular question was, why did God make us? Why did God create us in the first place? It's a pretty good question, pretty basic. Some of our adults uh, also wonder the same thing in our adulthood, like, why, why am I here? Why did God make me? And I want you to hear the subtext of that question because almost always without fail, that question is asked from a place of uh, suffering or when you witness someone else's suffering. Like if God knew all this was gonna happen and life wouldn't always be pleasant and kind, then why did God go ahead and create us the way that he did, right? And so that's kind of the place that this question is coming from. It's a great question posed by many of our kids, and so I'm excited to, uh, to address it in, in today's uh, message. Before um, we get there, I kind of want to deal with some of the assumptions behind this question first. So this question is, is an old one. It's, an, it's, it's as old as, as humanity itself. Like even people in the Old Testament were asking the very same question in some poetic ways. King David, um, thousands of years ago, 3,000 years ago, was asking the same question in Psalm chapter 8. When he said, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the sun, the moon, the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. This is a question King David posed, you know, all those many years ago, and, and we continue to wrestle with that question today. So the, the, the assumptions I want to wrestle with first is uh, the assumption that we're making that God made us in the first place. Right? So if you're a Christian, a regular churchgoer, that's probably something you assume without thinking twice about it. But we try to be a church that speaks directly into the hearts and minds of skeptics and uh, cynics. And so you might not take that assumption on face value. You, you might not feel like it's a given that God made us in the first place. Maybe you feel like, well, it was something else or nothing, we just appeared in some random point in the history of, of the universe where there's just no explanation, so why bother? If you make that assumption, I just want you to know it's not necessarily um, uh, something everyone else around you is gonna make as well. So uh, more than at any point in time in history, more young Americans especially are assuming otherwise. So a recent study by the Pew Research Council suggested that especially young adults, we'll call them millennials. I hate the word millennials. I think it should be a dirty word because we've just been bagging on millennials for 15 years. And if I was a millennial, I would hate to hear another study about millennials. However, it does tell us something about the direction of, uh, thank you. We need to switch over. Yeah. Okay. Hello. Okay. I'll stay with this one for now. The, uh, the assumptions have shifted 
latest research indicates 50% of millennials, only 50% of millennials feel certain or confident that God created the universe. Think about that. Only half of young adults in America, right? Test. We're switching? Okay, that's good. I hate this thing anyway. Woo! All right. So, look, I've got this. I've got this. It's time to get a revival on, y'all. All right. So, <laughs> woo! Settle in. All right. I'm from East Texas. Here we go. Okay. Uh, so, 50% of young adults in America say they're confident God created the universe. Only 51% of young adults in America say they're confident that the Bible is the word of God, which, uh, among other things, makes me really wonder about that one guy, that one millennial guy who's like, yeah, it's the word of God, but he didn't make the universe. Like, I'm not real sure about that guy. Like, millennial girls, watch out for that guy. He doesn't know what he wants in life. He's not someone you can trust, okay? So, um, but generally, you get the idea and regardless of where you stand on the existence of God or, or what God did to create the universe, I think all of us can find some common ground in this, in that virtually everyone agrees that whatever it is we call the universe had a beginning. And I think it's lost on us how new an idea that is. That wasn't something people believed very long ago, like people always kind of thought the universe had always been and, and is eternal and, and that time is, is linear and it is infinite. But no, as, as more scientific data have, have come in, we've, we've learned something new and we all kind of universally accept that about 14 billion years ago, the universe had a birthday. And before that birthday, time didn't exist. Clocks didn't tick. There was no years, no dates, no time. Any Christopher Nolan fans in the house today? Interstellar, anybody? All right, good. So I'm talking about time is not infinite and time is not linear. Time is a weird and strange thing that began 14 billion years ago. Space also began 14 billion years ago. Here's what we think happened, and almost everybody across the spectrum of belief believes this. 14 billion years ago, there was something. In fact, there was still everything, but it was all, all of it, all the matter and all the energy in the universe, all the stuff that makes up stars and, and, and moons and us and everything was somehow mysteriously compressed into a Tiny, white-hot singularity no larger than the uh, head of a needle. And, it, and it, it was there just stewing and white-hot just chaos until something, and we don't know what, frankly, like we're the, we can't be sure what, but something sparked an explosion of that singularity, an explosion so immense that today, 14 billion years later, it still affects us. It still pushes us the Milky Way galaxy, through the universe, through space, racing at a speeds of over 13 million miles an hour. We are traveling that fast right now. And that's just how fast our universe is traveling. That's not even accounting for, for how fast we are traveling within our universe. We should be sick to our stomachs all the time. We're racing through space because of some explosion that happened 14 billion years ago. Everyone agrees about that that there was something, and then it was sparked that created everything, the Big Bang. Now, when I was growing up in East Texas, going to 
revivals and things like that. Like, I was taught that when somebody starts talking about stuff like the Big Bang, you turn them off. Big Bang is the enemy of the Bible. Big Bang is devised by the devil to fool us. I remember learning all kinds of, I'm not going to get into it, all kinds of crazy things about, about fossils. And anyway, I'm, I'm just going to, like, it was, it was all a trick. It was all a trick, right, just to get us to not believe the Bible anymore, right? And I, I, for the life of me now that I know what the Big Bang really says, what, it really, what the theory really is, I cannot imagine how or when Christians ever came to the conclusion that the Big Bang presents a threat to biblical uh, interpretation. Because if there's ever been a scientific theory that resides in perfect harmony with what the Bible says about the origins of the universe, it's this one. It's the Big Bang. In fact, when the Big Bang first came to light as an idea, it wasn't the Christians that were upset about it. It was the people who didn't like Christians, people who had allegiances to a very strict uh, secular worldview that wanted the world, the universe, to be a certain way, and then suddenly it was proposed that the world isn't static, it's moving, it's expanding, the, the universe isn't infinite, it's finite, it had a beginning, it had a creation point. The guy that, that proposed this theory to begin with was, in fact, a Belgian uh, a priest. He was a Jesuit priest who uh, was also an, a physicist. So, pretty smart, pretty smart guy, but he was a priest, a man of the cloth, and he ran the numbers, and uh, his name was Georges Lemaitre, that's a French name, I didn't say that right, but he is called the father of the Big Bang even now, and when he proposed his conclusions and his, uh, his hypothesis about the Big Bang, it wasn't the Christians that got up in arms, it was this group of sort of militant anti-church physicists who tried to publicly shame him. They tried to quiet him. What they suggested in their public rebuke of Father George was that, was that he crunched the numbers and twisted the data to support a conclusion of the origin of the universe that would line up perfectly with his Bible, right? Among his critics, when, when he first presented his findings, was Albert Einstein, who was one of the proponents of a static and infinite universe. That's what he based all of his study in science upon. And Albert Einstein um, famously uh, criticized Father George in, in his theory of an expanding universe. He said, your mathematics are correct, but your physics are a joke. Thanks. <laughs> Albert... <laughs> Albert Einstein, very smart guy. I mean, basically, Albert Einstein posters were my wallpaper in my dorm room growing uh, in college, right? Like, Albert Einstein was somebody everybody looks up to, the cool hair and whatever. But he was wrong some, you know? That's okay. He was wrong some. He had some presuppositions, some assumptions that just turned out to be wrong. So in this case, the joke was, was really on him. And it really brought to mind some of the other quotes that, that he is famous uh, for saying, like some of the memes you'll see online, like only two things are infinite, the universe and human stupidity. And I'm not sure about the former. Well, he was actually wrong about the former. The universe isn't infinite. It had a beginning point. Now, he might have been right about the latter. And his response to Father George's proposals about the Big Bang might be evidence to that point. It also brings to mind something else Einstein was fond of saying, something else that you'll find on internet memes everywhere today is that blind belief in authority is the worst enemy of truth. 
Blind belief in authority is the worst enemy of truth. The people that share this meme today are the ones that just want the church to go away because those religious people get in the way of good science and good progress and they have this blind belief in this authority that leads them. And the irony is totally lost on them how easy it is to be a blind believer in all sorts of things, whether it's God or any other worldview. And the scientific community's initial response to Lemaitre's uh, uh, findings is really a helpful reminder that it's not just believers in God who are faithful. And no matter what worldview you have today, whether you're a dyed-in-the-wool Christian, you've never left God's side and you've always been at church on Sundays, or whether you're just here putting your toe in the water to, to see if, if it's something for you, or whether you've rejected God entirely, we all take our own leaps of faith. You can see this in their response because the scientists who responded the way that they did to the Big Bang findings didn't do so on the grounds of truth or fact, did they? They didn't really look at the numbers. They saw a Christian who was putting forth a proposal, a scientific proposal that supported Judeo-Christian scriptures and they didn't like it. And so they spoke out in faith against it. And they were wrong. Y'all, when it comes to a creator and whether or not we're made by God, any honest person and any honest scientist is going to be torn. We all have a choice to make. And I think we all kind of make our choice. And the way that we live our lives kind of, kind of puts on display the choice that we really make. Like whether or not you think God made you with a distinct purpose in mind or whether you're, you're willing to say what that purpose is. If you just kind of showed me your, your bank statement or your browsing history or your calendar, we could probably figure out what your sense of purpose is. I just want you to see right now that we all are walking by faith. Science and the Bible, both are matters of faith. And they both have so much in common. If you think about what we're talking about right now in this theory of the beginning of the universe, think about all the things that the Bible and the bang have in common. This idea that the universe had a beginning, which was not a popular idea before the advent of the Big Bang. This idea that, that we, we agree that there was something before the birthday, right? Something existed. I almost said some, somewhere something existed, but there was nowhere yet. There's space. This is really going to blow your mind here, but space wasn't in existence yet, so there was nowhere yet, but something existed, and Big Bang physicists would call that the, the singularity, that teeming white-hot little pin needle, you know, that, that's just a, that's just full of potential energy, like that's all that existed, that everything was, was compressed into that. And the Bible kind of says something similar. The Bible in Genesis 1, fascinatingly to me, in Genesis 1, the Bible calls that primordial stuff chaos or darkness or the deep. Now, a lot of people think Christians believe that God created everything ex nihilo or out of nothing. I don't know where we got that idea either because that's never been what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say God made everything out of nothing. The Bible says God started with darkness and chaos in the deep, which aren't nothing. Those things are something. I'm not saying that this science of the Big Bang is proving the Bible right and they're gonna find Noah's Ark on some mountain someday. Like that's not, that's not, that's not where my heart's at here. I'm just saying it's interesting. It's, it's interesting that we make some of the some, same assumptions 
as scientists and as uh, biblical uh, readers, right? So uh, one example of a scientist who kind of uh, who, who kind of got a lot of people's attention when he started talking about his faith in God was a theoretical physicist, uh, John Polkinghorne, who who wrote, "For me, the fundamental content for belief in God is that there is a mind." and a purpose behind the history of the universe, and that the one whose veiled presence is intimated in this way is worthy of worship and is the ground of hope. All right, I'm actually doing it. <laughs> so here we go. I wanna, I wanna move from that, the, the assumption part, to the question, the actual question the kids asked, because what they asked is why? What's the reason, what's the purpose? Why did God create us? Whenever I asked them that question in return, you know, I got a, a lot of answers, but the most popular answer that I heard back from them was God created us because he was lonely, which is a very sweet idea. So I think it comes from the purity of a child's heart that God was all alone, and so he wanted some friends, and so God made us, and I love it. I, I actually think I, I asked the other services, 845 and 945, why they think God made us, and the adults were like, he was lonely. Like the, the purity of a child's heart still resides in all of us. Um, and it's an interesting idea, but, but the Bible actually offers an alternative, an alternative view of this. The Bible doesn't support necessarily the idea that God was lonely. We see this in Genesis 1 again, first chapter, the first book of the Bible, in verse 26 and 27, where God said, and this, this blows my mind, y'all. This is ancient, ancient scripture. God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And then we have the next verse, I think. Here we go. So God created humankind in his own image. Check it out. God created his, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. There's a couple things about this passage that strike me as odd. First of all, people had thousands of years to correct the grammatical mistakes in this passage, and no one did. And my experience on Facebook and Twitter would lead me to believe that the grammar police would have gotten around to this passage at some point in time. They're always correcting my posts. So why not deal with the fact that in the same couple verses, God is referred to in the plural and the singular? I only bring this up to point out and to lift up the idea of, of the Christian notion of Trinity, which is a very important one, but every time I say the word Trinity in a sermon, I feel like everybody just kind of goes to sleep or checks out or wonders when this thing's going to be over because we don't trust the idea. Skeptics do not trust the idea of the Trinity. And I've been there. I know why. I think it's because we think it's something Christians came up with after the fact, after the New Testament, to explain away the fact that Jesus prays in the New Testament. Jesus prays. Who's he talking to? Is he talking to himself? If he's God, like, is, is, is like a Sybil situation going on? Old people know what Sybil is. Like the, the multiple personalities thing, or like, what is, what is happening with Jesus? Why is he praying? Well, it must be one God, three persons. Okay. That sounds disingenuous to me, except for the fact that the notion of one singular being, one God, can be known in multiple expressions or multiple persons. That, that you can have a singular and a plural in one divinity, one God, one deity. 
right? So this was present as early as the first chapter of the first book of the Old Testament. Thousands of years ago, this idea existed that God is one and can be known in different expressions, different persons, different forms. One of the first verses of the Bible says that it was the Spirit of God or the uh, Ruach Elohim, the breath of God that hovered over the chaos of that primordial stuff. So, when we talk about the Trinity, what that has to do with our conversation today is that it would seem to refute the notion that God created us because he was lonely, because he was alone, because God is and never has been alone. God doesn't just crave community. God is community. God doesn't just love family. God is family. And if you think about it, that makes a little bit of sense. Why is it that the human heart longs for community, companionship, friendship, love, intimacy, home, family? Why is it that we crave those things? Is it simply because, you know, biologically speaking, evolution determined that we're safer when we're in community, that lions won't attack us when we're in a pack, you know? Is, it, is that the answer, or is there something more going on in the human heart? Is it because maybe we're created in the image of God who doesn't just love community, he is community. He is family. That's what the idea of the Trinity actually means. The Bible offers an alternative answer to that question the kids are asking. Not that God was alone or lonely. The Bible says God created us to glorify him or for his glory. This is what it says in prophet Isaiah 43, verses 6 and 7. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So we are created for the glory of God. Full disclosure, y'all. Before I was a Christian, whenever I was angry at Christians, I would hear Christians say things like, God made you for his glory. And I would think, what kind of a God is that? How narcissistic do you have to be? to go to the trouble of creating all these people for your own glory. So we would just sit around and go glorify you, glorify you. It just seemed a little trite to me, if I'm honest. I think two things were going on. First of all, I was so anti-church at that point in my life that I would say no to anything the church said um, without even considering it. Second of all, I misunderstood the notion of glory. I interpreted glory through the lens of a broken, fallen creation. So for, for us today, glory means, hey, look at me. Like glory means fame and renown. Glory means power and, and victory. Biblically speaking, that's not what glory ever meant, y'all. When the Bible says you were created for the glory of God, it doesn't mean so you would sit around and go, glory, glory. What it means is that you would be a reflection of God. And I mean that literally, because nearly every word translated as glory, and there's like six or seven in the Bible, Old and New Testaments, there's six or seven different words that are translated as glory. Almost all of them have to do with light. Light. So John, who was Jesus' best friend, who wrote the Gospel of John and, and, and a few of the letters in the New Testament, John said two things about the nature of God. And it would seem like he's a pretty good authority. He said, God is love. And in ch chapter 1 of his Gospel, he said, God is light. So God is light. And to live, to reflect God's glory, is to live to 
to be a bearer of his light in whatever you're doing. So uh, what that means is basically every room you walk into, you, you light up. You know, in the romantic comedy, she just lights up a room. That's like a lot, of, it's a lot of pressure to think about having to light up every room you're in. I've got introverts in the room right now that are like, I'm out. That's not for me. I'm, I don't light up rooms. I want to go home to my cats. They're the light of my life. I'm just kidding. So listen, introverts and all of you, listen, it's basically the opposite of that. You don't need to have a good personality. Hallelujah. You don't need to be the life of the party. You don't need to be charming or contagious or any of the stuff that, that the world tells you to be to influence people and win friends or whatever. It's not about that. It's not your light. It's not your light. And there's freedom in that. It's the light of God that's reflecting from your heart to the world around you. All you have to do is be willing to be the reflector. All you have to do is surrender to that idea, to the notion. And it is a, a leap of faith to say, God, if I walk in this room and I don't need to, to, you know, to look good, I don't need to be the man, I don't need to be in the spotlight, I just want to reflect you that he will shine his light. And he will. So you don't have to impress people. You don't have to win people. You don't have to charm people. All you have to do is love people. Love the people that you're with. Even if you have cats and a bad personality. You can love the people. <laughs> no matter who you are, you can love the people that you're with. Now listen, no matter what you believe about God, and I hope there are people here that disagree with me because I want people here that disagree with what I'm saying, what I would suggest is that no matter what you believe about Christianity, you have a worldview, and as part of that worldview, you know or you have a sense of what your purpose is. And if you're like, no, I don't know, I'm an agnostic, man. I don't know anything. I'm just living my life. I'm just living the dream. I'm just day-to-day -day just for me. Look, that's your purpose right there. You just named it. You're day-to-day, -day and you're living for yourself. That's great. You know, uh, I'm sure everyone loves to be around you. Like, that's, that's a great way to live your life. Just, but that is, that is your worldview. That is your purpose. And a lot of people have chosen that purpose because we don't know the answers to the big questions, so I give up, so I'm just going to eat, drink, and be merry. Right? Other people uh, say, well, I've been told from the day I was born that, that I'm supposed to look out for number one, so that's what I'm doing. You know, I'm, I'm looking out for me. I'm putting my oxygen mask on first, and if I have time, I'll take care of other people. But, but really, what I'm here to do is to flourish. And if I hear the word flourish one more time from, like, ethicists and modern-day debates, like, about theology and stuff, like, we're just here for human flourishing. Humans are supposed to flourish. Well, what's flourish? I don't really know. It just depends on what makes you happy. You know, like, it's like eating jello with a fork. Nobody really knows what it means for humans to flourish. You can't pin it down, you know? And so the, the truth is, what's really under that is this extreme narcissism that says, I'm here to flourish and help as many other people as possible flourish too. Until and unless their flourishing interferes with yours. At which point you're happy to watch them not flourish anymore. You know, or their kids flourishing interferes with your kids flourishing, at which point you're happy for your kids to flourish at their kids' expense. And it's not that nice anymore. So listen, this Christian stuff, you can take it or leave it. But I'll take a worldview that says we were created to reflect the light and love of God over and above 
I'm here to flourish. A thousand times a day. A thousand times a day. Whenever you are alive in God, God is glorified in you. What does this look like in the day-to-day real life? Paul kind of says it uh, in, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10. When he's writing about, he's actually writing about church potlucks. There's a whole chapter of, of Corinthians that's about how to have a good church potluck. And, uh, and it includes, it's true, it includes this passage where he says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So you don't need to be on the streets of Calcutta, you know, being a revolutionary um, to, to reflect the glory of God. You can just be sitting down to a meal. Something as mundane as eating. I've got a friend, one of my best friends, that every time he sits down to eat, he prays the same prayer. And every time I eat with him, whether it's at his house or out in a restaurant, I always want to ask him to pray because he says the, the same prayer. It's a very simple prayer. He says, Father, I just thank you for all the plants and animals that have given their lives for me to have this meal today. It's very, y'all don't laugh. He's here right now, all right? So it's a very simple prayer. It's a little, 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 it's a little dances with wolves, a little new agey, you know, kind of whatever. But, like, it's, uh, I like it. I like it because it's, it's a simple prayer of gratitude. And it's light years better than sitting down and consuming a meal as if nothing died for you. What has gotten into us when we eat every meal as though we're entitled to it? as though nothing was sacrificed for our sake. To glorify God is to live every moment of every day as if much has been sacrificed for your sake. As if you were never entitled to anything and God has given you everything. So you walk in the light of that gratitude. Y'all, this week I was, uh, or last week we were uh, in the Dominican Republic and uh, we had 19 people go to the Dominican um, with Go Ministries, hear from the story. And, and Mission Trips and I have a, have a tenuous past, I will say. Uh, I've always had a, a little difficulty with Mission Trips because it has always seemed to me that Mission Trips boil down to unskilled American attorneys and preachers and accountants going down uh, to places we call the third world and pretending like we know how to build stuff. Like that's pretty much what it boils down to. And then when we leave, they probably tear it down and build it right, right? So this one uh, is a little bit different. Whenever they load you up in the bus and they take you to a neighborhood in the Dominican Republic, uh, really what you're thinking as the the American missionary is uh, where's all the tools? Well, we don't, we don't need any tools today. Where's the materials, the building stuff? <laughs> That's what I call, uh, you know, construction supplies, building stuff. Where's it? Where, where's the tool belt and stuff? And uh, they're like, we don't, we're not going to need any of that. Well, where's the shovels? What are we, we going to dig today? Oh, we're not going to need any of that. What are we going to do all day for these poor people? And Go Ministries folks are like, well, you're going you're gonna to play baseball with them. And you're going to play dodgeball with them. And you're going to hold them. And you're going to paint their faces, and you're going to tell them Bible stories, and you're going to sing songs, and you're going to listen to them for hours. Hmm. But what difference does that make? We're not going to have any buildings to take pictures of and put on Facebook. 
What does that mean? I'll tell you what it means. Um, the consistent, constant presence of a movement of people who just love makes an impact on a community, on the most desperate and depraved communities. Three years ago, I went to the Dominican for the first time. Um, and we went to a place called The Hole, and it was this community where it's literally a hole in the city, like you walk down all these stairs. And, and uh, on the way down uh, to that community three years ago, one of the things that I noticed was just you could, obvious drug activity and just poverty, and uh, women and girls were sitting in windowsills, kind of exposing themselves, hoping that white tourists would stop and offer them money for their services. It was just this awful, awful experience. But a few years back, Go Ministries planted a church in the hole. And they could have taken those resources and they could have done anything with them. They could have, uh, you know, given it to the government and say, government, start an agency here. Or they could have started a soup kitchen or they could have done job training or any other stuff um, that we often do. But they started a church. And what's interesting is that all that other stuff has come out of that church. <laughs> soup kitchen, shelter, job training, etc out of that church that they started. And now the experience of going to the hole, it's not, look, it's not perfect. It's still tough. But it's not what it was just three years ago. Because what happens is when people of God just choose to reflect the light and love of God wherever they go, and we're just part of this machine, this Go Ministries machine, 365 days a year, they're bringing new groups of people to go and just love the children and dominate them in dodgeball like I did and everything else. Like there's, there's something to be said for that consistency of shining a light. And the more light you shine, the longer that you shine it, the less darkness there is. And creation, the creation around you can be renewed and restored when you choose to simply reflect the light of God. It really makes a difference. I just want to wrap up by asking you the question, what is it that you're living for? If someone did that audit of your bank statements or your browsing history or your calendar, what would that say? <laughs> What'd you say? Amway? Did somebody say they're living for Amway? No, you shouldn't do that. It's not a good investment. <laughs> I heard somebody say something. Say, Memories. Thank you. I appreciate you talking to me because no one ever talks to me. <laughs> so, truly, what is it that you're living for? And if you're not a believer, I understand you have your reasons why. I've been where you are. And I believe that your reasons are valid. If you're not a believer, I'd like to ask you to compare the worldview you're living with now to the worldview I've described in today's talk. The notion that we were created with the purpose of reflecting light and love, the light and love of the highest good, this creator that made us. And ask yourself if there's a chance that that's the truth. And if you think there's a chance that there was some mind and purpose behind the creation and intimated in the, the creation, as John Polkinghorne said, then open yourself up to that possibility today. And just say a prayer today and then say a prayer 
tomorrow and lean into that possibility that maybe you're here for more than what you've been living for. Let's go to God in prayer. Lord, I thank you for the ways that you speak to us and the ways that you move in us. And I pray right now for a breakthrough to happen in this room and in the hearts of people in this room. I pray that we would pause from the busyness of our everyday lives and the self-importance of our agendas and we'd pause and just consider for just a moment that there is more than us and that we don't belong at the center of our universe, but you do. God, that we would have the courage, even in our skepticism, to pause and consider the possibility that the reason we exalt heroic acts like the one who is innocent and dies for many is because we were created by a God who is willing to do just that for us. May we live as though much has been sacrificed on our behalf. May we shine your light in dark places today and tomorrow and the day after. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.